Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today we're talking cotton and its market. What do we mean by cotton? Where is it produced? Where is it processed? What is the mechanics of global and domestic trade? What are the futures markets? And how is cotton also being affected, like all other commodities, by the energy transition, digitization, and deglobalization? Our guest is a veteran cotton trader, Crawford Tatum. Crawford has covered every facet of the cotton business, including leading cotton trading for 10 years at a multinational trading firm, and is currently the Director of Economic and Market Risk at Staple Cotton, the world's largest and oldest cotton cooperative in the world. As always, you can really support the show by leaving a positive review on the platform you're listening on. However, nothing really substitutes for word of mouth. So please do share with your colleagues and share with the community, the podcast. That really helps expand our audience and thereby enable us to get great guests and cover the topics you want. We're also on YouTube and there there's a bit of a growing community where if you want to request topics or comment on episodes, please do so. And finally, I hope you enjoy the episode. Crawford, welcome to the show. Thank you, Paul. It's really nice of you to invite me to be here as part of the HC Insider podcast. Um, I looked at the list of previous guests, and, and it's really quite an honor to be here. Well, I'm excited to have this discussion. We're talking cotton and the cotton market, another one of these commodities that are so crucial to our lives as individuals, but also the global economy, yet doesn't really figure in that basket and or major indices when we're looking at the, the, the commodities markets. And we're going to discover why. I guess we should all get on the same page to start off with. And w- w- what is the plant that produces cotton? And, and can you just give us some sense of the, the biology behind it? Today, there are really two plants that are used in the industrial process. Uh, one is the Gossypium hirsutum, and the other one is Gossypium barbadense. So one of the questions I get when somebody says, what do you do? Uh, I say, well, I'm a cotton trader. I work in the cotton industry. And they say, oh, wow, is Egyptian cotton good? Do you trade Egyptian cotton? Well, the answer is no. I don't trade Egyptian cotton. Egyptian cotton is probably three-tenths of 1% of total global production. But Egyptian cotton, to to answer the question, is a good cotton, uh, and it falls under a category called ELS, or extra-long staple cotton. So when you you think about the Gossypium barbadense, which is the the ELS, and I won't use the word barbadense anymore or hirsutum anymore, we'll refer to barbadense as ELS and and, uh, hirsutum as upland cotton. Uh, upland cotton makes up 97% of the world's production and, and is really the, the, the commodity cotton. And, and the difference between these two, don't think Brood and Brent, don't think Arabica and Robusta, think Kobe, Kobe beef versus choice beef. Uh, ELS cotton is what you'd purchase in a, in a real fine shirt or real fine home goods like sheets and towels, uh, whereas the upland cotton is used more in blue jeans and uh, really your your commodity goods, t-shirts, underwear, those types of products. 
What is the ecology of cotton? Where you know where does it grow, and what are the the crop cycles and so forth? Just you know, again, getting us all on the same page before we talk about markets. Sure. Uh, so cotton's been around for a long time, not as long as food, but there have been examples of of cotton fabric that were found in parts of Latin America that dated to six thousand BC. So if you think about the first people that were on the planet, they probably wore a lot of animal skins. As time developed, they they wore more linen, which was developed from flax. Cotton eventually came along, but it it's really a arduous process to convert cotton prior to the Industrial Revolution, to convert cotton into clothing or into cloth, taking each plant fiber and, and spinning it into yarn and without mechanization, it just wasn't a fast enough process to really be expanded across the globe. So uh, the the product that we have today really didn't come into play until around the Industrial Revolution. And it's really interesting that you asked that question, Paul, because there's a lot of parallels that happened in the 1860s that we see in the marketplace today or have seen in the marketplace in the past few years. So just to give you a little bit of a fun fact too, when, you, when you're looking at row crops, whether it's corn or soybeans or sorghum or any of the other row crops, cotton is the only one that's a tree. It's a perennial crop. It's, it's not a annual crop. If you leave cotton in the ground, it will produce year after year, but that's not the, the process that we go through. It's not the most efficient way to produce cotton. Another fun fact about cotton is when you see cotton lint, each fiber that you see is actually a single cell. So each one of those fibers is like a straw with distinct cell layers that surround a hollow part. So each one of those fibers is actually its own individual cell. Cotton though, it's, it's been around for a long time, but it really didn't proliferate until say the 1730s. Prior to that, it was more of a cottage industry. And where it really came into play was in England uh, first, in in Britain. So as the Industrial Revolution developed in the 1730s, Britain was was very uh, on the forefront of innovation, and especially with with textile innovation. Some Some of the greatest inventions ever in the textile industry came from England, and they actually came in the 1700s, a lot of the same technology that was used back in those days is still used today. Of course, it's faster, it's stronger, it's better, but uh, the principle of, of the products that were developed back in those days are still employed today. So to give you some statistics, in 1790, cotton was less than 3% of all British imports, but by 1830, cotton was 55% of all British imports. And textiles during the same period had grown from basically zero in Britain to 55% of all British exports during that time. So Britain played a very integral part of the advent of the industrial cotton process. Interesting enough, Liverpool, England was or became the epicenter for all cotton imports. Uh, It had the proximity to textile factories that were in Lancaster and Manchester and many of the surrounding cities. And by, say, the mid-1800s, 80% of all cotton imports came through the the port of Liverpool. The world basically became dependent on Britain's Mm. textile production during that time. By the mid-1800s, two-thirds of all spindles 
that meaning two thirds of all textile production was done in England. Liverpool developed the first cotton exchange uh, and created the first cotton derivatives contract. Yeah. They had an actual clearinghouse. Uh, this is sometime around 1870. They had their, their, their own clearinghouse. They held settlement procedures. Uh, they had a bank. And really, Liverpool and, and that area remained a st- strong textile producer until, say, the end of the Second World War, when the government eventually took over cotton imports and, and the port control because of problems with the war. Despite the eventual demise of production in England, I think it's important to note that the Liverpool Cotton Association, or as it's called today, the International Cotton Association, is still a very active part of the cotton trade. So that's one of the parallels between today and, say, 160 years ago. The ICA, International Cotton Association, is still headquartered in Liverpool, England. It carries the rules and the arbitral body for almost all international physical cotton transactions. So uh, if cotton's trading today from Brazil to China or from the U.S. to, to Vietnam or U.S. to Turkey, most of those contracts, I, I would venture to say 99% of contracts, are going to state that the rules and arbitration will, would be held in, uh, in under the ICA or, or under what would be the old Liverpool Cotton Association rules. Yeah, fascinating. Just down the road from Galveston, which obviously was uh, the the Wall Street of the South, right up until you know, uh, well, a a hurricane wiped them out, but then you know other events, but dotted with enormous old cotton exchanges and incredible wealth built there out of cotton exports. And obviously, there's a very dark and tragic side to to the the growing of the cotton and the picking of the cotton, you know, and the slave labor that was that was used for it up until the Civil War and arguably some extension after that. So, you know, it was an incredible wealth generator, and it's fascinating to talk about the history of it. You know, where is it now grown, and where are the where's the major manufacturers of, of, of cotton products currently based? Can you give us some sort of sense of the last 70 years, if you'd like, in, in development of the trade? Sure. So we talked about the consumption side. England was a big consumer back when the Industrial Revolution occurred, well, the U.S. was also, but became the biggest producer of cotton. Uh, you, you just mentioned that the, there's a whole trade that was built around the Southeast U.S. that really accounted for about 75% of the global production of cotton. And, and it's interesting because as the Civil War developed, uh, say in 1860 is, is about the time that, that things started to to heat up cotton at that time was trading for 10 cents a pound. Well, as the civil war broke out and 75% of the global production was from the Southeast U S the, the North blockaded 95% of the Southern ports and prices shot to a dollar 89. That's the equivalent of say $70 a pound today. Well, what that caused was uh, an, an expansion of production beyond just the, the U.S. borders. Uh, it it in, invited countries like India and Brazil to look at the opportunities in cotton. And, and those have, have carried over throughout time. So cotton has always been an international product. It's, it's for the most part been produced in a country that uh, is not one of the biggest consuming countries and had to ship to, to some other part of the world to, to be processed. And that history of cotton has, has been in place really since, since inception. 
So when you look at, at cotton today on where it's produced and where it's consumed, uh, the, the biggest producers of cotton today are going to be uh, in the U.S. and in India. Uh, in China, is, China's going to be your, your number one producer. Brazil has really made strides over the past few years to, to become one of the biggest producers of, of cotton in the world. It's really a story about uh, the world choosing to grow food acres rather than grow fiber acres, uh, say, over the last uh, 20 years. And, and that's been the interesting part of the, the business, even as you've seen G global GDP expand, as, you, if, as you've seen per capita incomes expand. What you haven't seen is a real increase in cotton production. You've just seen a shift in where it's produced. That's fascinating. Let, let's let's talk about it. You mentioned the Civil War. I mean, there was a lot of concern at the time in the North that the UK was going to recognise the South simply with the dramatic impact the embargoes and blockades were having on the UK industry not being able to access that cotton, right? And that's a whole interesting uh, story there. Okay, so you've mentioned the current producers at the moment and that's a fascinating comment there so have we if if the world has not really expanded cotton production in the last 20 years can you give us some you know has that had a, a commensurate rise in in prices or has that just mean we've been switching from natural fibers to to synthetic fibers yeah so let's let's look at some of the macro factors and i really am looking at the change when i started looking at this i started looking at the changes that have occurred during my career. So I started in 1997. Uh, when I started in 97, the U.S. had a very strong domestic consumption of, say, 112 million bales. Production was on par with where it is today, depending on what weather is. But the world has changed a lot. If you look at global GDP in 97, you were at 31 trillion. Today, uh, you're closer to 100 trillion. So that's a 222% increase in and global GDP, global population has grown from 5.9 billion to 8 billion or a 35% increase. Per capita GDP has increased from 5,200 to 12,100 per person. But cotton consumption has only grown from 85 million bales per year to roughly 115 million bales per year. So why is that? Does that mean that people are wearing less clothes? Does that, does that mean that they're using less towels? Well, we all know that that's not a case. I think what it is a case of is a classic case of substitution of goods, just like we all read about in our Econ 101 classes. Specifically, cotton uh, has been substituted with polyester. So total fiber demand on a global basis from 97 and, and until today has grown from about 45 million metric tons to 113 million metric tons. It's a significant increase of 150%. Poly consumption has grown to 26 million tons or 57% of fiber demand, while at the same time, cotton consumption has fallen down to about 24% of total demand. So we, we've seen a rise in poly. At the same time, we've seen some new technologies come on that have also taken the place of, of cotton, whether it be uh, cellulosic fibers, the bamboos, uh, viscose, some of the uh, uh, other new technologies that have been developed over the past 20 years. Yeah, interesting. Can we can we uh, dig into the actual mechanics of the global trade? 
we talk, we talk about contracts and you know and the futures market and volatility and prices themselves. Can you just give us some sense of how this global trade is set up? Who are the participants? What are the relevant things we need to be thinking about? You know, how is cotton moved? Cotton's probably not too different than than most of your other agricultural commodities. Uh, you've got the ABCDs. Bungie has not necessarily been in the cotton business, but they are perhaps uh, about to have a merger and perhaps are entering the cotton business. I'm not sure there, but certainly the ADM uh, has has come into the business in the past few years. They have a presence in, I know, in Brazil and the U.S. And Cargill has been in the business, gosh, for hundreds of years or 100 years that, that they've been around uh, a long time. Uh, and Dreyfus uh, is is a big part of the business. Cotton's unique, though. The the company I work for now, Staple Cotton, uh, is the oldest and the largest cotton cooperative in the world. So it basically has a professional management team that works for the members. The purpose is to serve the same purpose as an international trader and market the the production from the producers all over the world. There there are other cotton cooperatives uh, that do the same thing, primarily in the U.S. The, the goods flow from the, the primary producing countries, which would be the U.S., Brazil, are going to be your two biggest exporting countries. And the, the consuming countries are, are going to be very similar to, to what we discussed a minute ago, which are going to be China is going to be a big destination. But we've really seen a shift over the past 20 years in where the number two, three, and four consumers of cotton are. So uh, I mentioned before that the U.S. had a vibrant textile business back in the late 90s. It fell apart just as the dot-com bubble burst. We lost uh, a lot of the, the domestic cotton business in the U.S. So consumption in the late 90s in the U.S. was call it 11 and a half million bales. And today it's going to be somewhere between two and two and a half million bales. But what we've seen is a pickup in, in other countries. Pakistan was a beneficiary. Bangladesh was a beneficiary. China increased its consumption considerably over that time. Vietnam has been a big beneficiary in Turkey as well. So there's been a fair distribution of business as consumption has picked up some as shifted from the U.S. to other countries, but uh, Southeast Asia and Turkey have been, have been the, the biggest beneficiaries of that. And, and how is it traded? Are these long-term supply deals? Is this, as, you know, can you give some sense of what's, what's in the spot market? You know, how, how actually are these international flows contracted? It depends on your term of long-term uh, contracts. Uh, most of the export contracts are, are going to term anywhere from 30 days, 60 days, out to 12 months. Um, I would say that on average, the the tenure of a, a deal is going to be somewhere between four and, and six months in, in advance. It takes a while to move cotton. It, it doesn't happen overnight. So the, there's a whole process of ordering out shipments and preparing shipments and organizing the logistics. The warehouse has to load the cotton out. So there's there's quite a lead time, especially in the U.S., to move a bale from point A to point B, and and hence, you know, the tenure of deals seems to match roughly what it takes to to move those bales from point A to point B. 
how is cotton priced how is their price discovery you know is this a, a vibrant trading market you know and give us give us some sense there yeah so most of the deals are priced versus the ice cotton contract number two the cotton contract was actually founded uh back in 1870 by the new york cotton exchange uh, it eventually became regulated under the CFTC Act of 1936. Globally, it is really the only viable contract that international traders use. Everything trades at a basis versus the ICE futures. We trade March, May, July. There is an October contract with very, very little open interest. Very few people trade it. Uh, so the, the December contract would be the last month of the year that we trade. It's, it's a liquid contract. It, it's got plenty of open interest. I'd put it on par with, say, a, a coffee or it, it's not quite as liquid as, say, a sugar contract. It is different uh, from some of the other soft contracts in that it's a U.S.-only contract, meaning that in order to satisfy, if you want to make, make or take delivery against the, having a longer short in the market, uh, it's U.S.-only cotton that would be taken or delivered. So. The only delivery points in the world are Galveston, Dallas, Memphis, and Greenville, South Carolina. Has to be U.S. cotton. There was an attempt to have an international contract as well. Can you just uh, kind of a bit of a fascinating insight into you know what contracts work and what contracts don't? Which why did that never take off? Yeah. So look, there was a real valiant effort put forth by the cotton industry, and and I've got to give a lot of credit to. Ben Jackson and Tim Barry at, at, at the exchange, uh, they spent a lot of time working with the industry and we tried to put together uh, an international futures contract that, that would work because so much cotton outside the U.S. is hedged on the U.S. futures contract. It would be a better fit to allow international deliveries, but the, re the reality of it is it's just, it's too hard. I think the advent of this whole process, though, so the ICE Futures global contract or world contract was launched in 2015. The advent of that really occurred in 2010-11 when we had, uh, I'd mentioned before that, say, in 1861, prices went to $1.89 for cotton. It took from 1861 until 2010-11 for cotton to reach the $1.89 level and eclipse it again. So 150 years, uh, some odd 150 years to reach the same level. And it was it was kind of a fundamental event. It, it was a confluence of events. You, you had uh, two years of, of low production. So you're coming off of the, the great financial crisis and, and low prices. Acres weren't planted one year. And then the following year, we really struggled with productions in the U.S. Uh, we had a crop disaster because uh, of dry weather. And, and at the same time, the markets were beginning to improve. Demand was beginning to improve. One, one of the events that I, I think had a significant influence was the Chinese state reserves had sold out of their inventories and needed to rebuild inventories. So at the same time, we have low stocks and low production. The, the state reserves were, were purchasing more balance sheets fell to historic low levels and prices eventually went to $2.30. Well, because of that, that disconnect and because of lack of available supplies in the U.S. to force convergence, 
the global trade decided perhaps we should try to create this global contract so that in the event that this happens again, we, we will be able to deliver uh, international growth uh, against the, the exchange. But I think the biggest issue uh, with the process was that it was difficult to find a place in the world that wasn't cost prohibitive to actually make a, a physical delivery. Port Kalang in Malaysia was where we ended up coming to the conclusion that it's probably the most viable area. There, there were no tax uh, implications for making or taking delivery there. It was in, in Asia, which meant it had proximity to local demand. But at the end of the day, they just didn't have the infrastructure or the experience to, to be able to execute those contracts. So ultimately, it, uh, I think the trade and probably for sure from the speculative side, because we didn't have the volume, it just it didn't work out. The HC Insider podcast is brought to you by HC Group, a retained search intelligence and advisory firm focused solely on the global energy and commodity sector. With six locations across Asia, Europe and the Americas and over 50 consultants. To find out more, go to our website, hcgroup.global. There, you can also sign up for our HC Insider content for more interviews and white papers on relevant trends and talent impacts in the commodities world. Let's move on to, I guess, being a trader. This is kind of what fascinates me about these. You know, we just did an episode on rice earlier this year. You've got lots of different potential impacts and fundamental things to be looking at, right? You've got, as you mentioned there, you've got state state goals and buying. You've got crop. You've got weather, harvest quality, etc. You know, what are you what are you looking at when you're a trader? What are the what are the key dials that are present in the cotton market that aren't necessarily there in things like oil, for example? Well, uh, all the all the old guys when I first got in the business would tell you that cotton is a leading indicator. Cotton seems to be the first into recessions and the first out of recessions. And if you think about it, uh, when you're coming out of a recession, everyone wants to feel good. So what do you what's the easiest thing to go out and buy? Well, new clothes. They're a whole lot cheaper than buying a new home or a new car. New clothes seem to be the first thing people buy. And it's also something that you can wear or stretch the use of a lot further. If, if your car completely breaks down, you get forced to go buy a new one. But you know, if, if your towels are a little bit more threadbare, well, nobody can see your towels and they still work. So you continue to use them if if times are tough. So cotton, it, it tends to be a leading indicator in a lot of ways. I don't think there's anything different uh, that we as cotton traders look at that would be different from other agricultural commodities. Weather's a big part of it. Demand is, is is a big part of it. Money flows. Money flows have continued to increase in importance over the years. It used to be when, when I first started in the business, the, the risk management and the research process was standing by the water cooler, having a drink after work and, and a discussion and sort of formulating a, a, a theory around a, a good scotch. But Today, it's much, much more professional than it was 25 years ago with the advent of technology and computers and AI and Python and the amount of work that goes into research and 
the the quest for that holy grail of information that that's going to give you an edge over anyone else is is probably it's it's never been as strong as it is today yeah we were chatting offline uh, you yourself went out and did a got a qualification in python right and and did night school over a few years learning it to 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 build that edge what is the volatility within cotton and, and how are traders changing to 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 keep pace with that if i look back over my career uh, there's probably been three events that have really shaped this industry well one was in 2000 when the dot com bust occurred and we lost the us textile industry for the most part that was a big one the next one was in 2008 2008 was a unique event because on march 3rd of 2008 was when electronic trading was was launched or they eliminated the open outcry process after 142 years and what happened in the cotton business was futures prices rose from say the low 80s uh, ultimately to a high of a dollar nine synthetically and and it wasn't just the the move from the low 80s to dollar nine that mattered what mattered was the synthetic close one day was significantly higher than where the futures were. And I don't think anybody understood at that time that there was no limit on synthetic closes. Uh, I don't think anybody understood at that time that uh, margins could be called based on synthetic closes. So the the 2008 event uh, ultimately caused the demise of a lot of historical companies that had been in the business for a long time, really good small firms that had strong leadership and people that that had been big influences in 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 the business and and done a great job developing the industry over a number of years and and being a young guy in my early 30s i don't think i realized at the time just how significant the loss of those companies was we lost a lot of institutional knowledge we lost a lot of leadership so that period of volatility really uh, the the transition that i saw in terms of professional risk management that was put in place uh, you know prior to that with uh, at the time i was working for the noble group out of hong kong prior to that risk management sort of consisted of the honor system for the most part you made sure that your positions uh, weren't going to get out of control you make sure that you didn't have on too much short gamma you made sure that you knew your customers, but after that period, I think a lot of big trading firms experienced new systems of VAR and risk management departments. And, and you know, for the most part, it, it, at the time, it felt like it was invasive, but in hindsight, it was a good thing. It stabilized the industry. It forced people to manage their positions in a different way. And it really prepared us for uh, what was coming in 2010-11 when prices went to $2.30 because we didn't lose a lot of the the merchant community dur- during that time. It was painful. It was difficult to manage. There was a lot of volatility, but we didn't we didn't lose the the same number of people uh, or the same number of companies during the same time period. And and really since then, I would say that even though the international contract didn't work out uh, one of the lessons that came out of trying to create the international contract was that number one, it's difficult to to have a successful new contract, but number two, 
don't underestimate the ability of the marketplace to to find a basis level versus the the current contract or, or what's working. At some price point, people are going to learn to to price versus what works. That as well as translating, it's fascinating, isn't it? Like every other commodity as well, the the successful traders today and the or the successful teams, you have to have that blend of fundamentals right deep experience in the markets knowing knowing the events that can and do occur that can shift the dynamics significantly but also you need to have the the technical capabilities as quant capabilities as python coders to be able to actually manage the 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 shorter term volatility and understanding those money flows yeah, I agree. I, I think the question that you, you posed to me in preparation for this is what makes makes a successful trader. Uh, so I made a few notes and a, after thinking about it, and, and I would say number one is is a good team. In my opinion, having the solo guy that's sitting at a computer and downloading information and, and running his own spreadsheets or even his own models, the probability of success, I'm not saying it's not possible, but the probability of long-term success, in my opinion, is lower than if you have a good team. It's really difficult, in my opinion, for everyone to have all the necessary skills. Uh, You've seen these guys that are one-man bands and the guys playing five different instruments at one time and singing. It's impressive, but there's a reason you don't see those everywhere you go. And it's because bands work out better if you have somebody that perfects singing, if you have the the lead guitarist that's sort of the the musician of the group and and the drummer. And a lot of times those are not necessarily interchangeable. It it takes a different skill set to be a a cash trader and and deal with personalities than the skill set it takes to be a quant. A lot of times those two are not interchangeable, but in my opinion today, you need both of those. And I would even take it a step further and say that in order to support a a big team, and it sort of depends on what size team you're talking about, but to support a big team, the the support matters uh, from support staff, whether it's HR, risk management, or, or accounting, logistics, all of those are integral parts of a commodity trading desk today, and and they all need to be very efficient and proficient at what they do. Compliance, legal, I mean, this is part of why the, you know, we're not seeing many new entrants into various commodities because of the barriers to entry are only increasing, right? Not, not, not least in the the key front office traders that you need and the blend of different skills there, but yeah, all of the supporting functions. Thanks for that. Let's move towards looking forwards. Firstly, before I ask my big question, can I just say, uh, what, are, what are the runes saying right now? Is cotton indicating a, uh, a recession or not? That's a great question. <laughs> Bearing in mind, this will probably go out in a couple of, you know, in, in six weeks or five weeks or so. So you, know, you can use that as a get out clause. But yeah, go on. Give us your best shot. Yeah, I'm just, th- I'm just sitting here and thinking how I answer that question. And, and I think I'd answer that question by saying, it's still too early to tell. I think one of the bigger debates today is, did COVID, the stimulus money that was put into the marketplace, reset the base for commodity prices? So if if a low price for cotton or kind of a floor price for cotton historically would have been a 60 cent, 
55 cent level has the the new influx of of money into the system reset the the floor level at at 70 or 75 cents the same question can be asked for corn is is the new floor level going to be 475 or for beans is the new floor level going to be 11 to to 12 dollars and i think it's too early to answer those questions i know that cotton specifically it's going to remain secondary to food as as populations continue to grow food is going to be more important so that competition for acres it's it's funny uh going back to 2010-11 uh, i spent a lot of time in asia during that time and i'll never forget hsbc had an advertisement and it seemed like it was on every jetway in asia at the time and it said in the future cotton will compete with corn for acres well cotton prices were rising and corn prices were rising and we had this inflation debate that that occurred back then to kind of answer your question I, I think this inflation debate has has been around for a long time and and we're still waiting to to see if 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 we have had a new reset if we have then prices are low if we haven't then there there's still move, room to move lower it it's just it's too early to tell interesting interesting comments and ones that yeah span the the commodity basket right okay so as we look through a more longer range you've got uh, these sort of tripartite forces that are affecting all commodities from the energy transition through to deglobalization and digitization and for the most part those are all generating a lot of volatility around you know all technology pathways and prices and so forth can you give us some sense i mean let's start with deglobalization has china a major consumer of cotton has cotton been part of the the growing sort of decoupling and, and trade wars there can you just give us some sense on where you think that relationship is headed yeah for certain uh with cotton there were trade wars and we experienced the trade wars even since then the u.s has stepped it up a notch and, and they've created the uyghur forced labor prevention act the u.s has a scar on its history from from having slave labor well According to, to the U.S. And, and China still has some of that slave labor that's in the cotton business in the western part of China, specifically in the Xinjiang area. So they, they've created this Uyghur Forced Labor Pre Prevention Act. And, and effectively what that does is prevent any products that have any form of cotton that's produced in Xinjiang, China, from entering the U.S. And, and they're quite serious about it. Uh, there's quite a strong enforcement of it. What's the market's response been? Is that just the continuation? This is a, a, a happening in other value chains, Pakistan and so forth. There are others being the beneficiaries of this uh, switch, or is as it were we yet to see that? So the beneficiaries, one of the biggest beneficiaries, has been Bangladesh. Bangladesh, from 1997 till today, the the industry has grown basically from zero to one of the biggest consumers uh, of cotton in the world. One of the biggest. Uh, sources of textile production in the world. They have a tremendous industry. The government, the local companies have done a really good job of developing that, that market. Pakistan's another beneficiary. Vietnam. Vietnam's a huge beneficiary of not necessarily near shoring, but let's call it friendly shoring. Uh, and, and I think that specifically for cotton, the, the push for that has only gotten stronger over the past couple of years. And what about on that energy transition piece? I mean, you know, we sort of started this conversation talking about 
cotton, the market hasn't grown because of substitution via uh, polyesters and so forth. You know, is that is that tr- a transition under threat as we, you know, just stop oil and so forth, you know, wearing their vinyl T-shirts, you know, or vinyl, vinyl orange shirts? You know, obviously those polyesters come from the chemicals industry, which comes from the petroleum industry. Are we seeing anything there about a push to natural fibers? You know, how does how does the energy transition play out in the cotton market? I think the preference of the consumer is for cotton. Uh, I think that's undisputed. I think the reality of it is very similar to the reality of GMO versus organic for food. It's just not practical for the world to only survive off of cotton products. If so, cotton prices would be tremendously higher. So it's really a a matter of economics. Cotton prices today are, say, 85 cents. Polyester is still sub 50 cents a pound. Uh, There's an economic incentive there to to use polyester. And as long as that economic incentive exists, polyester is going to be in, in the marketplace. What makes it difficult when you talk about the energy transition China's the biggest producer and consumer of polyester in the world. There's call it two thirds uh, of global production and, and consumption of polyester uh, occurs in China. And they don't have the, the same constraints in, in terms of ESG that uh, say Europe or the US have. Part of the, uh, the inherent challenge here, of course, with externalities is uh, the incentives to, uh, to not go along with, with these policies, right? I guess the final strand is digitization. Do you see further attempts to launch more contracts in the future or or any other technological developments on the horizon that will change the the landscape and nature of trading within the space? I don't anticipate uh, any attempts to launch a new contract. Uh, As I said before, I think the marketplace has learned to use the contract that we have and just trade a, a basis relative to, to the contract that's working. The developments or changes that everyone can see in the market today are going to be more traceability. So there, there's some sort of demand downstream from retailers, perhaps from the consumer, to be able to trace the product back to origin. You know, where was it produced? Who produced it? What was what was the seed variety even that was used to produce the product? And then how does that dovetail into carbon? The, the world's going through this decarbonization phase and wanting to get to net zero and, and how the, the textile and, and the cotton industry participate in that. From both standpoints, I, I still think is fairly undefined. I think they're going through the beginning stages of working through what's practical, what are going to be the cost implications, who's going to pay for this, uh, how much burden goes on the producer, how much burden goes on the end textile user. There's a, there's a lot to, to still work out, and, and it's really in the beginning stages of that process. Well, that has been a fascinating discussion. I walked away knowing a lot more than I, than I went in with. And, you know, I really appreciate your insight. And it's just fascinating to me how, again, all of these commodities are facing similar challenges and opportunities as well. And, and you know, how their journeys have been 
unique but similar in many things and i you know talking about the talent requirements for the, your cotton trader today and the future maps over exactly with the same discussions that we're having in the energy and metals world as well yeah thank you very much paul for the the invitation it's, it's been a pleasure being here thank you for listening if you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show please give us a positive review on apple podcasts or spotify find out more about HC Insider and HC Group, a search and advisory firm dedicated to the commodity markets, visit our website at www.hcgroup.global. There you can find out more about our services and our offices around the world. There you can also find more content from interviews to insight pieces to more podcasts focused on the commodity value chains. Thanks again for listening.